Welcome to Man Up, the podcast by men, about men, and for men who want to be better fathers, husbands, leaders, and followers of Jesus. Today's topic, intentional leadership. Are you ready? Man up. Yes, sir! Welcome, welcome, my friends. I'm your host, Jared Bowman, and this is Man Up, your podcast with all the encouragement that you need to be a better father, husband, leader, and follower of Jesus. We are a band of brothers. We are soldiers. We are comrades, and we fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, hand over hand, and mile after mile until each of us has helped the others attain the high calling of Jesus. And today, you're back for part two of our interview with Don Truex, where we are trying to answer one very simple question. What are your intentions? And how it is that pointing ourselves in the right way can make all the difference in our lives as leaders, as husbands, as those who are working in God's kingdom. And Don has done such a great job for us already, and I am excited to share part two of this interview with you. If you have not heard part one, you definitely want to go check this out. But without any further ado, are you ready? Man up. Let's take that thought of of trying to live for Jesus, being intentional for that, and let's turn that to leadership. I know that you've done quite a bit of work helping elderships prepare men for the next generation to be shepherds. You you talked a little bit already about how you got involved in that work, but give the guys some insight into that. And as you're answering that, I want you to think about some areas of specific concern that you have for elderships in the future. All right. Well, I'm glad to, because this particular topic certainly is a is a passion of mine, Jared. And so I'm, I'm always happy to talk about, about that. In the last several years, I've done an awful lot of, of teaching and uh, preaching, but in particular, working with, with elderships in various parts of the country on, on matters related in particular to shepherding. And, you know, where I really got started with that, I, back close to the area where you used to live, I, I've probably held more meetings and done more special events for the Dallin Road Church in Beaumont, Texas than than any other in the country. My friend Max Dawson has been there for about 45 years now. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I was there in a meeting and Max said, hey, Don, you know, I just I just taught a quarter class on the subject of kingdom, kingdom leadership. And he said, I'd, I'd like for you to read the material while you're here and tell me what you think. Well, it was just outstanding. And, you know, his focus was on on elders overseeing through the eyes and heart and actions of a shepherd. And it really, it really began a process with me and with our congregation and our leadership here at Temple Terrace. You know, shepherd, shepherd leadership is the dominant leadership motif in the Bible. It's shepherds and sheep are referenced some 500 times. Jesus Mm -hmm. is the good shepherd. Peter said he is the, the chief shepherd. Uh, He is the shepherd of our souls. And so, that motif of leadership is everywhere. You know, the, in the book of Acts, Paul's words, you, you, my God, over which the Holy Spirit has made you, has made you overseers. Peter using similar terminology in first Peter five. And so in our church family, in our leadership here at Temple Terrace, we, we really, we, we studied this for about six months on a regular basis. And, and we made a determination that we were going to lead from a shepherd's perspective. We were going to fully engage and incorporate our deacons in the work more fully than they ever had been before. We were going to 
free them to do their work and not micromanage their work. We were going to let them do their work so that we could do what we are commissioned to do by God, and that is watch for souls. And so, yes, in the last several years, I've, I have, I've visited with many elderships around the, the country, sometimes in standalone times when I'll go and meet with them on a Friday night and a Saturday morning, then fly home. But sometimes before a gospel meeting, I'll do that. Before we begin on Sunday, I'll do that on a Friday and Saturday with, with, with an eldership. And it's, it's been an amazing, it's been a blessing in my life to be able to talk about those things and share something that I'm, I'm passionate about along that line. As to your question of what are some of the areas of concern for elderships in the future, I think that's along two or three lines, Jared. One is that the biblical model of shepherding souls is hard. It requires a commitment of time and effort that is unrelenting. Functioning as a board of directors, where you simply, behind closed doors, make decisions, issue those decisions and public proclamations, but remain detached from the church, that's easy. Shepherding souls is a long-term process that requires time, effort, focus, and intention. Trying to do what Jude, I'm trying to snatch their soul from the fire. And that may, that may take weeks or months and months. And so this, this shepherding work is hard. And so one of the areas of concerns is just, is just getting elderships to understand this is our primary responsibility. Shepherding souls is our primary responsibility. That takes effort. That takes focus, direction, commitment. Now, it also reaps amazing rewards, not only for the souls that you shepherd, but for the church as a whole, who has, you know, when, 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 when a church truly sees that, knows that, understands that that's, that's the perspective of her shepherd overseers. You navigate your way through, through things like COVID without difficulty. My heart broke, Jared. My heart broke mm -hmm. for the churches that I heard of during COVID who had, you know, upheaval because of mass or what you're doing in your service or whatever. But we had none of that. We did not have the first moment of that. Why is that? Well, I think because, I think it's because our church family has had years and years of experience knowing that, well, they may have had a different preference. The one thing they know is that the shepherds in our congregation, they have absolutely the best interest of the flock at heart. And every decision that they make is made from the perspective of doing what is in the best interest of the flock that they serve. So that's, you know, that's a challenge. Getting, getting elders to understand that they must also be shepherd of souls first and foremost, that's, <clears throat> that's a that's a challenge. And then the second thing is that once you embrace that, once you embrace that, once you're living that, when you, once you've put the, the mechanisms in place that make that model work in a church, <clears throat> then it is passing that on to future generations. You know, one of our, one of our shepherds here at Temple Terrace, he, he, he made an amazing statement. When we, when we first several years ago, were really embracing this, trying to grasp this and, and trying to implement and live this way. 
he made this he made this statement. He said, wouldn't it be great if the young people in our church, if they grow up, and insofar as leadership in a local church, this is what they see and this is what they believe is normal, that elders and overseers do that from a shepherd's heart, with shepherd's love, watching souls. They let the deacons do their work. And this is the, just the model they believe is normal. And I, I thought that was a great observation. We need mm -hmm. to be, we need to be establishing that <clears throat> pattern so that not only is it benefiting the church today, but it's, it's teaching our kids. This really is what leadership yeah. in a local church should look like. Well, and that's one of the things that I think answers the third part of this question that I hadn't brought up yet. And, and that's what's really giving you hope for the future. And I think for all that we sort of bemoan Generation X, my generation and younger, particularly when you get into the millennial generation and Generation Z, and and and, and there's a lot that's going wrong in those generations. I, I, I freely admit that. One of the things that they have really sort of begun to hold our feet to the fire on is are you authentic in what you're doing? And if we can capture the enthusiasm for authenticity and we can we can show them that, hey, and this speaks to our intentions, mm -hmm. that we're a congregation of people. I, I'm a preacher that is authentically interested in bringing people to the Lord, that we are, you know, there, you know, for the men of the audience that are shepherds, that we are shepherds who are authentically interested in watching over the souls of people. And, and we're not going to worry about brotherhood positions. We're not going to worry about the soundness of congregations mm -hmm. across town. We're worrying about the work where we are. Are we holding together? Mm -hmm. Are we teaching the truth of the Bible? Are we bringing people to Christ? Those are the things that we're concerned about. That you are going to raise a group of people that have a commitment to authenticity, mm -hmm. but their authenticity <clears throat> will be, I want to be the best Christian that I can be. Yeah. And that gives me a lot of hope. What gives you hope about the next generation? Oh, well, <clears throat> first of all, let, let, me just, let me just say something about our young people. I've said this a thousand times, Jared, that I, I believe that we that we have among us some of the best and brightest, some of the most morally and ethically sensitive young people to be found anywhere. I think our young people are are just amazing. I just I look at these young people, Jared, and I just I am amazed by them. They are tremendous. And it speaks to their moms and dads. It speaks to, you know, it just it just speaks to the environment in which they <clears throat> they've been raised at home and in their and in their church family, I, I think, I hope that that's, that's been the case. And so that our young people give me a lot of hope. But in particular, I'll tell you what gives me hope in these areas. The first is focus. That there are more and more churches that are focusing on shepherding souls rather than simply being keepers of a facility. More and more churches across the country. I'm so heartened <clears throat> by by elderships that reach out and say, you know what, in this area of shepherding, we, we want to know more and we want to do better. And, you know, it, it, mm. on, let's be honest, it, it takes some humility to do that. It takes, in whatever area, for any of us, it takes some humility to say, you know what, I, I need a little more insight here and I, I think I need some insight right. that maybe somebody else can help me with. That takes humility. And I, I see that more and more. 
and I, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the only one trying to do this kind of teaching. There are lots of guys doing this. And I, I just appreciate those el- elderships so much who are, who are, who are wanting to, to clarify their focus to shepherding on souls. And the other side of that is vision, vision, because I think more and more churches are asking, you know, what do we need to do? What do we need to do now? And what do we need to do for the future? And that is so very important that we're not looking just at today, but as we think about leadership, as we think about a variety of things that have to do with our local works, you know, what, what are we thinking? Not today, but next year and five years from now and 10 years from now, we have to be planning today for what we hope to accomplish in the kingdom of God tomorrow. Yeah, vision is is really important, particularly to that next generation. That they want to know that you're not just calling balls and strikes, that you got a plan for where you're going, and and developing that vision to to lay a path forward. And 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 you alluded to this that it it might not be a path that you ever see come to fruition, that it might not have the impact that you wish it would have in your lifetime. But a lot of times we're like Moses looking into the promised land, that we can see the direction that the people are pointed in, but it's not our task to take them over there. When you lay the course trusting that, in two things, number one, that if the course is right with Jesus, it's the right course for the congregation. And number two, that I've tried to build the rapport with the people, either as an evangelist or as a shepherd, or as a husband or as a father, that... I've tried to build the rapport with them that they will follow and continue that course because I've shared the vision with them. I think a lot of times that's where where elderships struggle is that they they struggle to share the vision with the congregation yeah. in part because they don't have right. one, that it is just calling balls or strikes, yeah. and in part because sometimes sharing the vision with the congregation, the, the sharing the direction that you want them to go means taking an about face at times and saying, we weren't as right about this as we thought we were. And this is something we talk a lot about in man up that in whatever role you are as a leader, whatever capacity you function as a leader, you need to understand the most important thing that you can do in leadership is not make all the right decisions. The most important thing you can do in leadership is tell mm-hmm. those that were following you what they already know, and that's you were wrong. Yeah. And you did it for the best of intentions, but you you made the wrong mm-hmm. call. Because the moment that they don't see that humility in you is the moment that they question your leadership from then on. Well, you're exactly right. And you know, you know Jared, the, the thing is that if you're truly functioning as a shepherd of souls, and people know that. They know that you've invested in their life. You know that they know that you care about them, that you love them. You know, if if you're doing, if you're doing what, you know, what Jesus gave us by example in John chapter 10, he calls his sheep by name. He goes before them. He lays down his life for the sheep. <clears throat> well, you know what? You, you can be wrong. That, that's fine. Yeah, like you already said, the church knows when you make a mistake. But you've got credit in the bank with them. They trust you. They know that even though you may have made a mistake, 
you had their best interest at heart. You were doing what you thought was right at that particular point in time. Right. And so, you know, you don't have to be afraid of that. That's the thing. I think sometimes that elderships are afraid that if they portray any vulnerability, that somehow they'll lose face with the church. When in reality, the opposite, the opposite is true. And if I could just, you know, just say a word about something you mentioned a moment ago about, about having a vision and sharing a vision. It's so very important. You made the statement a moment ago that sometimes elders don't share a vision because they don't have one. And that's, that's true, I think, mm-hmm. probably in some, in some circumstances. <clears throat> but it is so important that we, that we think, you know, in long term, that we do have vision about a variety of things. A couple of years ago here at Temple Terrace, we, one of our, one of our shepherds, he's just a wonderful man. He, he passed away this year from the after effects of COVID. It was a huge loss to us. He was a, just, he was one of the finest shepherds I've ever known in my life. But two or three years ago, he said, you know what? We need to, we need to think about some things for the future and we need to, we need to codify them. We need to write them down. We need to explore them, do our homework. And we need to share them with the congregation. And so that's what we did. We broke up into subgroups and we thought about, we thought about some long-term planning things. For example, <clears throat> in leadership with, with shepherds and deacons in the future, what do we need to do to be preparing for that? Mentoring young men, preparing them for those roles. We talked about, we talked mm-hmm. about in the, in the work here, doing the local work as a, as a preacher here. At that time, I was doing that by myself in the work of kind of being what we think about and being a local preacher. Kerry Keenan was here doing his great work in evangelism, but we knew, we knew we were going to have to have somebody to share the work with. You know, it just, it was, mm-hmm. it was too daunting. And we talked about evangelism, what we want to do domestically, what we'd like to do abroad. We talked about what portion of our contribution we would like ultimately to commit to evangelism and how we would get from point A to point B about that. And we talked about our physical facility. If we continue to grow as we are, what, how's our facility going to have to adapt for that? What do we need to be thinking about in doing that? And so we did our research in all of those areas. We wrote all that down. We created a booklet and we gave it to every member of our congregation and said, we want you to know what, we want you to know what we're thinking about. We're, we're thinking about and planning for the future. I, I think those things are just so important, Jared, that, that a church knows that as, as you phrase it, we're not, we're not just trying to call balls and strikes here. We're trying, we're trying to create a culture and environment where people are brought closer to Jesus, understand the value of fellowship with each other and see that not only as critical, but also sharing that in the community and world in which we live. How are we going to do that? How are we going to move from point A to point B? I I think churches need to know we not only think about that, we have a plan for that. Amen. And I think that goes in every aspect, in every aspect of life where we are leaders. We need to be talking to our kids about where we want them to end up. (laughs) We need to be talking to our wives about where we want our marriage to go. We need to be talking as, you know, even you know, as an evangelist that's a teacher. You mentioned earlier, teacher being a teacher is a kind of leadership. We need to be talking with the congregations about what our expectations are for our own work in them. 
and and the kinds of things we want to be preparing them for. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, you know as well as I do that that the best the best people for local evangelism are not usually the guys in the pulpit right. because when you say I'm a preacher, <clears throat> there's there's about a seventy percent factor it's gonna shut right. you down pretty quickly. It's the people are going to be the ones that open yeah. the doors first. Yeah. And creating that kind of culture where, you know, I want the people in Beaverton to know that I am a tool at their disposal. That when they open a door for evangelism, and I've seen instances in my life where something just shakes somebody's faith to the core and and all of a sudden they're turning to the nearest Christian to yeah. say, hey, well, what's this Bible yeah, all about? Exactly. exactly so. That I want to be an instrument at their disposal for that. And <clears throat> and I want the brethren to know those things and, and sharing those kinds of things. In a, in a way, it's telling people what kind of resource that you want to be for them <clears throat> and how they can help you achieve what's in their best interest. And and your kids may not understand that. You know, Will is eight. <clears throat> that he may not understand why I am telling him who I'd like to see him be in the future and and wanting to share that with him so that he can ask the questions that will one day help him achieve that goal, yeah. Lord willing. But he will understand why I'm asking those questions and sharing that vision at a later time in his life. I just wanted to say that there there's value. I think there's great value, Jared, in speaking a positive future into young people's lives. Through the years here, Jared, there have been a lot of there have been a lot of young people that when I've baptized them, that I've I've tried to talk to them and to speak to their future. There have been young men that I've said, I, I want to tell you what I see in your future. When I, this is when I baptize them. I said, I, I want to tell you that I see you as a, a leader in the kingdom of God. I believe God's given you that potential. I believe God's given you the ability to to have the knowledge and to have the character and to have a servant's heart to do that work. I just think there's value in planting those seeds in in our young people so that they can share that vision as they as they live. That's something that I may want to circle back around on for another episode because I think as men we're trained to respond to crisis. But as mm-hmm. Edwin Crozier pointed out, crisis if you really look at it just means a time of growth. It's when change comes. And when you when you give somebody that nudge that I, I really believe in you, I believe that this is a possibility in your life that you could be the next great shepherd in God's kingdom. You could be the next great evangelist. You you got the potential to be a good father or husband. It, it is positive reinforcement in a sense. But you're sharing a path that they could walk if their choices are carefully considered, right. then you're putting before them, the, you're putting the narrow way before them in a lot of ways. And it helps them in times of crisis because it will serve like a compass. And I want to go back to that episode on half empty, half full. Now, in that episode, you referenced Tom Hanks playing Jim Lovell in Apollo yep. 13. And it's in this situation where the men in the capsule are sort of blaming each other for what went wrong. And I think even ground control, I haven't watched the movie in a while, but I think even ground control is involved in one of those events at one point where they're trying to figure out whether the limb can survive reentry or not. And and he he sort of cuts through the nonsense of who's to blame with a very clear question 
And and what what was that question? You referenced it earlier. Yeah, he, you know, his his two co-astronauts are complaining about arguing about who who caused the problem, and he interrupts him and he says, "Gentlemen, what are your intentions?" And one of them, they both stop, and one of them says, "What what did you say?" And he said, "Gentlemen, what are your intentions?" And then he said, "This, I want to go home." I thought that was such a powerful scene in that movie. What are your intentions? But beyond that, he said, my intention is that I want to go home. And, and mm-hmm. I tell you, Jared, when I, the first time I heard that, it resonated with me because I thought, you know what, again, it's one of those filters through which we live life. Do we live life through the filter of, I want to go home? It's easy to sing on Sunday, this world is not my home. It's another thing to say, I'm going to think and speak and live in such a way that ultimately I can go home. Here's why that's such a powerful thought. He's sharing a vision. There. <clears throat> and this is why I put that question before the rapid fire <clears throat> section. He's sharing a vision. The, the Going to the moon is off the table yep. for Apollo 13 now. They're not getting to the moon. They've had a crisis. The only thing they can do is, for lack of a better term, point their compass to true mm-hmm. north. We've got one job, and it's mm-hmm. to get home. And preparing for this mm-hmm. podcast, I've been watching a lot of... Uh, a lot of YouTube videos on making decisions in crisis. And, and there's a, there's a, in fact, I might even put a link in the description, but there's a YouTube uh, channel where a pilot diagnoses what goes wrong. And if you're afraid of flying, don't watch this, (laughs) but what goes wrong in major airline disasters. And it's fascinating how many times, how many times it comes down to people are doing all of the right things to manage the crisis but nobody, you know, they're t- all taking the steps, but nobody has the vision of our job is to either get this airplane on the ground or to keep it flying. One yeah. of the two, depending on where we're at. And when you don't start with that vision you, and you get you get caught up in the checklist, you, it, it quickly turns into people talking to one another, chaos ensues. And and whether that plane lives or or, or dies at the end of that episode is completely, de- completely dependent, almost in every case, on whether or not someone speaks up and says, what are we doing? Yeah. And it communicates two things. Number one, we got to get back on course. And number two, I trust you. In in Lovell's case, the men in the capsule with me. Yeah, I know one of you is not the guy that we thought was going to be up here that we trained with for years and years and years, but you are the guys that can get me home. And I trust you. And when that resonates from elders, when that resonates from preachers, when that resonates from husbands, when that resonates from fathers, it can solve a lot of crisis. <clears throat> you know, I've seen husbands and wives who whose marriages have been intruded upon by all kinds of things, not just necessarily adultery, but uh, things of dire and great <clears throat> consequence, you know, a, a surprise death of a child or something like that. And they're trying to navigate these storms and and there, there's blame, there's frustration, there's anger, there's anger at God, there's anger at each other because you're dealing with grief the wrong way. You can't, the audience can't see the air quotes here, but you're dealing with grief the wrong way or, 
at some point you got to say, what, what's our purpose here? And I trust you. I'm committing my life to you. And so in those times of crisis, how does making sure that our intention is that my walk is going to be with Christ, how does that intention change our response? And how do we share that? Well, I would just say that it, it will not it will not change your response unless your intention is to go home. And that's why that's why that scene in, in that and it's a great movie, I, I think. It's why that scene I think so resonates. It you know, it doesn't it doesn't change your intentions unless you want to go home. <clears throat> but think about you, you talk about crisis and what we're gonna do with the crisis, but beyond the crisis. You think about how Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, you know what, uh, my life, you know, if, if we need to talk about crises, he said, I, I pretty well compare my crises with anybody here. And he gives, you know, he just lists a laundry list of things that he endured. But the bottom line really was second Corinthians five and nine. We make it our aim. We make it our goal, regardless of circumstance to be pleasing to Christ. And he said, you know, the crisis, it's going to come and go. Crisis will come and yeah. go. They will. But the question is, you know, what's your goal? What's your aim? And so, you know, he just says, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing, be well-pleasing to him. Whether we're at home in the body or away from that, our goal is to please him. And so that, that is the perspective that makes all the difference in the world. I think that would take us a long, yes. long way in our intention to go home successfully. This is an off-the-sheet question. Are you familiar with a man by the name of Randy Pausch? You probably are. You, the name might not jump out at Did you. Did you say Roush? Oh, no. No, I don't believe I am, Jared. <clears throat> okay. A few years ago, there was a, a YouTube video going around called The Last Lesson about a man that had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and how he had spent his last few years living. And he was a college professor. And, and during one of those sabbaticals, he went out and became an Imagineer because he'd always <clears throat> wanted to be an Imagineer. And he went out and designed a programming language to teach kids programming <clears throat> because he was a, the professor of computer science and human-computer interaction for Carnegie Mellon University. And he does this elaborate, and, and, and audience, I would recommend you go watch this video at some point. It's called The Last Lesson with Randy Pausch. And a lot of what Don just talked about is in that. that but he has this, has this saying that he, that he uses. In fact, I, there's a slip of paper I keep in my wallet that this is written on, or that has a saying written on it. It says, brick walls, the challenges of life. The brick walls in life exist to see how much you want what's on mm, the other side. Wow, that is great. So mm. when you're facing these kinds of headwinds as congregations where your unity is straining, you have to keep looking at what's on the other yeah. side of it. You have to keep thinking about home. When, you're, when your family is facing a crisis and, and it's straining, you have to, whether or not you weather that storm depends on how much mm. you want what's on the other side. And and I think about what the Hebrew writer said about Jesus in Hebrews 12, that when <laughs> that he looked at the cross despising the shame 
and is seated at the right hand of God. That, that, that's our author and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith. He looked at the cross and said, I'll go through you to get to what's on the other side. Yeah, you know, the Hebrew writer said, for the joy that was set before it. And so, you know, wh- yes. what is that? Well, it's saying, I- I'm going to go home. I'm going to get through this, yeah. not just because I want to go I'm home. Taking, I'm yeah, taking I want to take you with me. me. Exactly yeah. so. Exactly so. Yeah. So let's get into the <clears throat> rapid fire section. I like to remind the audience this we're setting our spiritual AR 15s for three round <laughs> bursts. Uh, and that the names are withheld to protect the innocent and in some cases, maybe the foolish. But these are all, to a degree, real situations that either I or other preachers have encountered. And these are things that you may be encountering in your own life. So, Don, a younger brother comes to you and says he isn't growing spiritually. He feels disconnected from other Christians, even from Christ. You've noticed that all the outward signs seem good. He's faithful in attendance. He's serving in public ways. What might you suggest to help him draw closer to his brethren and to Christ? I think my answer to that, Jared, would be along two or three different lines. That, you know, whenever somebody, whenever somebody, particularly a young person, comes to me and they say, you know, you know, Don, I, I, I think I'm losing my faith, or I'm not, I'm not connected to my faith as I once was. My first question always mm-hmm. is, okay, I, I certainly want to, you know, I, I don't doubt what you're saying at all, but here's my question. What are you doing to keep your faith? What are you doing to strengthen your faith? If you've identified this issue that my faith is waning or my connection with Christ and with brethren is, is waning in some way, then my first question is, what are you doing proactively to fix that? Because it's not enough just to identify the problem. So tell me what you're doing Mm -hmm. to try to fix that. But then my second question, because I think this is almost always, almost always tied to this scenario. My next question is, who are you spending your time with and who are you listening to? And what I mean by that is, Mm -hmm. what are the voices in your life or who are the voices in your life to whom you're giving authority? Yes. Are, are you allowing people to speak into your life who are going to deepen your faith and deepen your commitment to God and deepen your relationship with brethren and with the Lord? Or are you listening to and giving authority to voices that are disgruntled or unhappy? They've separated themselves from the Lord or from their brethren or critical about their brethren because the voices that we listen to have a powerful impact on our life. But then... But then third, and maybe most importantly, Jared, as I, as I tell people in the circumstance, look, if you want a faith that's going to last, if you want a connection to Christ and to your brethren, and if you want a faith, a personal faith that's going to last, you've got to find a meaningful task. I know that's true because James, James said that faith, your faith without works, your faith without meaningful works is dead. James said that, mm-hmm. not Don. James said that. So if you want to strengthen That's your right. connection with Christ and your connection with your brethren and your connection, your connection just to the depth of your faith, you've got to find a meaningful, tangible task that will make a difference in your life <clears throat> and in the life of others. And that, that is not measured just by public worship. So question number two, 
An eldership wants you to come and speak to them about preparing men for the next generation. They tell you that the congregation's women are frequently in study together. They support one another. Maybe they've got a a text message string, a a ladies group on Facebook. They get together just just to go out and have a good time sometimes. And and sometimes they're together to study the Bible. They they pair off often and go do good things for each other. But most of the congregation's men aren't really that involved in the work of the congregation. What might you suggest that they, or what steps might you suggest that they take to get men more plugged in and begin to prepare them to be leaders in the future? That's a great question. That is really a great, a great question. And again, excuse me, it's a scenario that it certainly is, is oftentimes, oftentimes real. The fact is that women, women offer in Bible are often in Bible study more than men. We might, we may not want to acknowledge that, but, but I think that's just true. Think about how many congregations, how many churches, local churches, there's a, <clears throat> there's a women's Bible class during the week and how many churches have a men's Bible class during the week. I will tell you that the women are going to far outnumber the men <clears throat> in, in that regard. And I don't, yeah, I don't have the answers to why that is, Jared. I mean, maybe I think sometimes men are a little more uncomfortable in settings just with other men when they're talking and, and, you know, making themselves vulnerable and talking openly about things. <clears throat> it may be sometimes an ego thing where men just don't believe it's necessary. Maybe it, maybe it's a thing where men sometimes feel like, you know what, I, I checked off my duties on Sunday. I did something in worship. I was there. And so, you know, that's, that's off, off the list. When I talk with men in a local church, I oftentimes talk about if you want to study together, ask this question. What keeps you up at night? What keeps you up at night where you're not yes. able to sleep? Men are not kept up at night because they're worried about Calvinism or premillennialism. Not saying that those things aren't important. Those are the backbone of denominational doctrine. We need to understand them. We need to understand why they don't <clears throat> dovetail with scripture. Not saying those things aren't important, but those aren't the things that keep men up at night. And so a good place to start, if you want to study together, is think about what keeps the men in your church up at night? You want to get them engaged? Talk about those things. Study about those things. Help them. Help them come to some clarity and peace about those things. But in talking with men in a local church, I also say, you know, look, here's we've all got to ask, do we want these local churches, do we want our local church family <clears throat> to just survive or do we want it to thrive? There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Is our goal that in 20 years, the doors of the church building will still be open? Is that our goal? Or is our goal that in 20 years, we have made generational difference for good with our young people, Amen. that we've made a difference in our community and beyond that domestically and beyond that <clears throat> internationally in our in the efforts that we've made to to reach individuals with with the gospel. And if our goal, if that is our goal to make generational differences, then we have to understand that we have to shift our thinking. And that means we have to shift our action. And so we're going to have to take the lead mm-hmm. because because as men, what what do we understand? That 
that women can't take the lead. They can't take the lead in these things in our church families. We've got to take the lead right. in that. And so we've got to fill those mm-hmm. roles. And we've got to take that seriously. And that's more than just making sure that the door is unlocked and the building is clean and worship happens on Sunday. And so we've got to do more than that. It kind of goes back to some of that long-term planning that I, I mentioned a moment ago that we did that we did here. <clears throat> we, yeah. We're trying to think five years down the road and 10 years down the road. And we know they're going to be a countless variables that we can't, that we can't foresee, but we've got to think about, sure. we've got to at least think about the process. And so part of that, Jared, I think is just getting men to think in those, to think in those terms. Yeah. I appreciate what you, what I was going to sort of let your answer stand there, but there's something that I really want to drive home for the guys that you just said. Men need to be on the same page in terms of what they want to see in the congregation. I think a lot of congregations, the idea is, okay, we want the doors to still be open. And I, in my younger years, preached a lot of sermons about what's going to happen to this congregation in 10 or 15 years if we don't get on the the ball of evangelism. But I don't want to be working with a group of people that's just existing. I want to be a force in the community where we are calling people out of the community to Jesus. And I want people, you know, I I know congregations can't go start institutions, and I know that there's limits on benevolence in the Scripture, but there are no limits in benevolence in the lives of the people. I want the people to go live the Good Samaritan and be that force for good so that when they're asked about the good that they do, the name of Jesus gets glorified in a way that's very practical. And that is absolutely true, Jared. I, I want to... If I can, I want to I want to mention two things keyed off of what you what you just said. The, the first yeah. thing f- for men in study is understanding <clears throat> how to make a text applicable and practical to your situation as a husband, as a father, or as whatever your role may be. For example, in the kingdom, I, I was thinking about this when you were talking about you mentioned the book of James. So we're going to mention the book of James, but how do we draw out of that? How do we draw out of that? how to be better husband and father. So I did, a, I did a little study out of the book of James for men. And I said, and I just took, I just did the text and I did it by asking questions that I believe are answered in the text. You know, I began with, do I understand who I am? Do I understand who I am? And then do I understand that service ministry to my family or in the kingdom of God in whatever way is not always easy. That's the way James began. This is not always going to be easy. Do I understand that it's not if I'm going to be tempted, but when? How am I going to be tempted in my roles as a husband right. and as a as a father? Do I understand that I'm called to live by faith? What we talked about a moment ago, and how's that faith going to be seen? How's that going to be? How is that going to be uh, <clears throat> manifested with my family? Uh, do I understand that if I become selfish, that it's going to do great harm? James talks about that in James chapter three. The wisdom from above, but also the wisdom that is far below. And it's it it's centered in selfishness. Do I understand that time is undefeated? That I've got one life. I've got to make the best of it. I've got these years with my family. And once they're gone, they are that they are they are gone. Do I understand about integrity? You know, James five, you, you gotta let your yes be yes and you know no. Your family's gotta believe in you. They may not for whatever else they know. They know that you're a person of absolute integrity, that we're going to do the right thing. 
We will make mistakes, but we're going to do our best to do the right thing. And then uh, at the end of James 5, do you understand that prayer needs to be a predominant part of your role as a husband and father? Because James said, you know, prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. So, I, you know, I, I think, and, and maybe that's a failure, you know, maybe maybe on my part as a preacher, it, as, as a teacher, maybe I haven't done enough, maybe none of us have, to help men look at text and see the practical applications that are there if if we just if we just open our eyes and and look for them. Hmm. The other thing I want to mention, Jared, is man, could we just take a moment and just pay a bit of honor to the women in our lives and the women in our churches? Man, oh man, they are so critically important to what we do. Imagine what our church families would be without without the women who do so much who do so much behind the scenes that nobody ever knows about. We need to take some time and pay some respect, honor, appreciation to women who do so very much and without whom our church families would be so much the poor. Amen. Absolutely. And, and it, it's part of, I think, being authentic that we were talking about earlier is to acknowledge that I'm glad whether it's in my home or it's in you know my church family or it's in my work as a preacher, I'm very glad that there are women in my life that are you know, my mom, my, my wife, my mother-in-law, that women that have been friends of our family and worship where we've, where we've worked. I'm very glad for quite a few of them <clears throat> because they've made a huge oh. difference in the work of yeah. preaching and in the work of raising will mm-hmm. and in the work of, of me as a Absolutely. husband. Thinking mm-hmm. about the congregation, you the congregations you visit throughout the year, and the one in Temple Terrace where you serve, what are some intentions that you think local churches need to adopt to make us more effective in sharing the gospel? And what are some things that have hindered congregations, both recently, in the last couple of years, and maybe in our recent past, going back you know, yeah. 10, 20 years? Boy, that's such an important question, Jared. Is so important on 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 a variety of <clears throat> on a variety of levels. You know, what are some of the intentions that local churches need to adopt to make us make us effective? You know, I mentioned a moment ago that for the past fourteen years, Harry Keenan has worked with our church family. Harry worked with us before that. He was a deacon in our church, and then <clears throat> he he lived and preached in Romania for several years, and then he preached up in Canada for two years before coming to us. And he's been with us for fourteen years, and he is. His emphasis is just on evangelism. He's a he's a full time personal evangelist. You know, one of the great things that Carrie has taught our congregation is what he calls he calls it the cycle of evangelism, <clears throat> and it has it has five components, five constituent elements. They are shine. Everybody understands that. Let your light so shine before men. In contact, you're the salt of the earth. The contacts that we make, just just like contacts that I referenced a moment ago with. In regard to <clears throat> to Wendy or somebody else at Starbucks, these are these are people with whom we interact and with whom we mm-hmm. we do do life, and so shine and contact. And then Carrie talks about connect, and this is where maybe we're just issuing an, an, an invitation, you know, like like John one, come and see, just just come and see, or uh, Acts eight, you know, how can I understand unless somebody guides me? And so this is the contact that that hopefully involves mm-hmm. some teaching 
And then if somebody responds to that teaching and they're baptized, then next is enfold. That is, we, we try to help new Christians become a part of the family. And we've got some very specific things that we do to help with that. For example, <clears throat> new baby Christians, we, uh, we, we, we go through a series of seven lessons with our new Christians. And we do that in seven different homes. And it, it always begins at my house. And then it goes to six of the homes of elders. And <clears throat> in each of those meetings, we'll share a meal together. But we also invite usually one of the other elders and usually a deacon, and then usually somebody from that person's peer group. So that by the end of the seven weeks, they've gone through the seven weeks of material, but equally important, mm -hmm. they at that point have met, they've met, shared a meal with all of our elders, uh, with several of our deacons, and they've met seven different families who are in their peer group, their, their age range. And so we do all of that mm -hmm. to try to help enfold them into, <clears throat> into the, the group. And then the final element is disciple. We want to help them grow and mature in the Lord so that they can begin the process for themselves. And so shine, contact, connect, and fold disciple. And that's, that's what Carrie has, has really emphasized with us. And it's, it's what we've tried to emphasize to our, to our church family. And so that's, you know, I can't speak for anybody else. You, you asked the question, in my experience at Temple Terrace. That's my experience at Temple Terrace. How Carrie for over a decade now has led us, <clears throat> has led us in that, in that kind of five-pronged approach. If you want to talk about hindrances, I, I think there are two great hindrances. And the first is one that I've talked about, you've talked about, and virtually every preacher has talked about. And that is, you know, the, the field of dreams mentality that if we build it, they will come. Yeah. Or, you know, Dorothy, when she woke up and she was back home at Kansas in her bed, and she said, I'm never going to leave my backyard again. You know, I think we've kind of had that mentality. If we, if we build a building, if we have services, and we're friendly people, and so if we build it, people will come. Well, think about where most of the lost are at 9 or 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. They're everywhere except where we'd like for them to be in our church building. So what does that tell us? Mm. It tells us we've, we've got to be the people who are shining and connecting and contacting, doing those very things <clears throat> to touch others where we, where we live. But the other great mistake that, that is so easy to make, Jared, is not following up after baptism, is not following up with those newborn yeah. babies. You know, sometimes, yeah, I've known of churches, you know, we, we've all known of churches. Here's our goal for this year. We, we want to baptize 25 people this year, or we want to baptize 50, we want to baptize 100 people this year. Well, that's a great goal. I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful goal. But then the question is, okay, what are we going to do with those people? How are we going then to enfold and disciple them? What's our plan yes. to do that? Because it's not going to just happen. And, you know, we've all, we've all used the illustration. Uh, every preacher has used the illustration that we don't bring a newborn baby home from the hospital, put them in the car seat on the kitchen table and say, hey, look, the milk's in the fridge, diapers over there in the corner, make yourself at home, and good luck. We, we don't do that. We just don't do that. 
But sometimes we do that with newborn baby Christians. And so churches have got to have a plan. They've got to have a plan of how we're going to, how we're going to enfold them, make them a part of the body, make them a part of the local church, make them know that they belong. And then how are we going to disciple them, help them put down roots of the faith and then teach them to do exactly what exactly, you know, what first Timothy two says to do. You know, the things that you've heard of me among many witnesses commit to faithful men. Why? Well, because they'll be able to teach others also. God intends for that mm-hmm. cycle of evangelism, as Kerry calls it, <clears throat> to go on and on and on. And I tell you, Jared, today yeah. we've got so many opportunities. You know, we, we've got global opportunities now, you know, through what you're doing. I mean, who, who's watching your podcast? Well, you don't know. And you don't know. It could be people around the globe watching your, you know, one of, think about, <clears throat> think, I, I've said this a million times. Think about what a blessing it is that we speak English because English in many ways has become the universal language. I've never been in an airport mm-hmm. anywhere in the world, uh, Russia, Hungary, Israel, Jordan, European. I've never been in an airport anywhere in the world, but what the announcements are not made in the native language and then also in English. Why is that? <clears throat> because you, English is the universal language. So, Jared, you may be touching people in parts of the world that you can't even begin to imagine. And so we've just got to be intentional about how we're, we're thinking about spreading the gospel, evangelism, in our, in our daily interactions and contacts, but then beyond ourselves Amen. as well. Well, and I appreciate how you talked about that five-pronged approach and the I think one of the areas where we fumble sometimes is in the the shine and the connect phase <clears throat> that we we tend to look at particularly when we're dealing with people in denominations we tend to look at them as as people that we need to convert to our way of thinking on a particular issue be it baptism or or grace or instrumental music and what we don't see them as we don't really see them as people that we need to connect right. with the Lord. And you're not going to you're not going to win arguments mm-hmm. and bring people to the Lord. Yeah. You're going to bring people to the Lord by bringing them to the Lord yeah. and having that intention. And I appreciate you bringing that up, that having that intention to shine and to contact and connect, to enfold them into God's people when they make that decision to to give their life to Christ and put him on in baptism and then disciple them, lead them, prepare them. It's just, it's our work as men. Our, mm. our work is to get ourselves, is to get home, but it's also to help others get yeah, home. Exactly so. And and when we forget that, then we've, we've lost yeah, sight of it. Absolutely. Great observation. Great observation. Well, you survived the rapid fire section, Don, oh, and you survived your first man up <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for being uh, here. Do you have any last words you want to say to the audience? Man, Jared, first of all, I, I just want to thank you <clears throat> for what you're doing. I've been <clears throat> watched your work and <clears throat> watched your preaching because I've known you for most of your life. And I just want to tell you how much I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing on the West Coast. You know, I'm I'm a Southern California boy. I grew up out there. And so I appreciate <clears throat> the left coast of this country. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. I appreciate your family. You come from good stock. Your mom and dad mean a lot to me. 
they were a tremendous encouragement to me when I was at Southside. So I just want to say that I appreciate the work you're doing. I appreciate the work you're doing with this. This is so valuable for us to step up as men and to acknowledge the work God's given us to do, to do that with humility, to do it with grace, to do it with empathy and compassion, but to do it with excellence and with fervency and intention. Because not only do we want to go home, but we want to take our families with us and our church families and as many others as possible. And so, Jared, thanks for letting me be a part today. I hope I hope in some small way what we've what we've shared has been beneficial. That's what we aim to be, brother, is a blessing in the lives of anybody that listens to the podcast. Just a few programming notes really quickly. I want to remind you, broadcast days are now Wednesdays and Saturdays. And so be looking for part two of this episode to drop on Saturday. And then also, I want to remind you about Biblically Speaking. We've still got the episodes on Revelation happening. And also, we're going to get back to doing some evidence work. And some we're going to be changing and adding some new focuses to that channel as well. So be looking for some announcements regarding that. As always, we want to thank you for being here. And we pray that it has been a blessing in your life. And remember, God bless and man up. Dismissed!